Good morning. Good morning. Let's do a couple of announcements. There will be no evening service tonight. We will resume our evening services on September uh, 25th, I guess, to be the next the next day. So and that's when our Sunday school uh, begins. Okay. Jared, are you up to kind of giving an update as to where you're at? Um, yes. Uh, can I give you the mic? I'll try. Uh, my blood pressure was uh, 250 over 150 uh, when I went in. It was in the stroke range. I do have an aortic aneurysm that they've been watching. And uh, it was God's great mercy to keep me from either having a stroke or dying that day from the aneurysm blowing. Uh, found out I am diabetic at that point, too, so my sugar was out of whack. And my blood oxygen was below 90 and dipped down as far as 54 in the hospital. Um, <clears throat> I got my blood pressure under control and uh, blocked my blood sugar back down and it took almost a week to get it there and uh, I have surgery in the near future when I say near future six months to a year where they want to make sure that I'm strong enough and healthy enough to have major major surgery um, 
So I'm feeling better, but better is a relative term. Um, and I'm not sure how much uh, school or that kind of stuff I can do yet. Uh, I'm very tired. Um, but I'm thankful to God that I'm still here. When they checked for damage on the heart, kidneys, brain, nothing, no damage whatsoever. They were surprised by that. And four years ago when they diagnosed me with the aneurysms and told me I had them, they said I had an abdominal one. I looked twice at the hospital and could not find it, um, which is, they say they don't go away. Well, they don't go away unless God heals them, I guess. Um, because it's not there, they can't find it. So instead of two, I have one really, really bad one. And it's located just outside the heart on the aorta where it cannot go vascularly to fix it. And they are talking uh, a complete aorta replacement uh, in, in the next year, which is a pretty necessary. So I'd like prayers for this next six months to a year. But I'm so thankful to God that had I not gone to the appointment on Friday, I probably would not be here today. And God is gracious. It's got purpose. I'm here because there's a purpose yet to be fulfilled. And he has called his son home yet. do serve an awesome God, do we not? Our scripture for meditation today is taken from the book of Psalm 144. That will be page 838 in your Trinity. It will be a responsive reading. When you arrive to that, would you please stand with us? <clears throat> Psalm 144. Praise be to the Lord, my rock. He is my loving God, and my fortress, my stronghold, and my deliverer. My shield, in whom I take refuge, who subdues peoples under me. O Lord, what is man that you care for him, the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a brook, his days are like a fleeting shadow. Part your heavens, O Lord. And come down, touch the mountains, so that they smoke. Send forth lightning, scatter the enemies, shoot your arrows, and rout them. Reach down your hand from on high, 
Deliver me and rescue me from the mighty waters. From the hands of foreigners, whose mouths are full of lies, whose right hands are deceitful. I will sing a new song to you, O God. On the ten-stringed lyre, I will make music to you. Deliver me and rescue me from the hands of foreigners. Whose mouths are full of lies, whose right hands are deceitful. Then our sons in their youth will be like well-natured plants. And our daughters will be like pillars carved to adorn the house. Our barns will be filled with every kind of provision. Our sheep will increase by thousands, by tens of thousands. There will be no breaching of walls, no going into captivity, no cry of distress in our streets. Blessed are the people of whom this is true. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Amen. Please be seated for a moment. Before we open in prayer, Pastor has allowed me to speak for a minute, seeing that this is the 21st anniversary of 9-11. I don't know if you're familiar with a, a name. I believe his name is Jim Birdwell. He's a Republican congressman from Texas. On the day of 9-11, he was a colonel in the Pentagon. Uh, I watched the interview, I think it was Friday night, on uh, Greg Kelly program. man told Greg Kelly that he had been a born-again Christian since 1971, but never really did much with his life. Yes, he, he was an obedient servant. He did all the things that a Christian did. But on 9-11, on that day, the Lord stepped in in his life. He was due to be at a meeting uh, on the outer ring of the Pentagon. And I believe there's five rings. He was with a couple of staffers, uh, female staffers, and they were going to a, the meeting, and something stopped him. And he says, we need to go this way. And when they did, uh, the plane hit the entire room all the people that were in this staff meeting were killed instantly. He was engulfed in flames. His two staffers, the female staffers he was with, were, were killed. And he subsequently was burned over 50% of his body with extreme burns. He was able in all of this to help pull some of the people out of the building before himself succumbing to unconsciousness. He woke up in the hospital and found out how serious his wounds were. To be burned over 50% of your body is generally a death sentence. Most people that are burned over 30% of their body with the severity that he had do not survive. He was remembers lying in his bed 
beseeching God to take him home because of the pain. His wife was able to arrive. She was advised that he was not likely going to see the night or through it. And he and his wife went to the book of 1 Peter 5. I'd like to read it. 1 Peter 5, verse 10. That was their favorite verse that they read all the time. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To all him be the power forever and ever. Amen. He was called on in that hour, and he served God. He remembered what God did for him, saved him, preserved him. He's now a congressman in the state of Texas. And if you get a chance to, to read his story, I heartily recommend it because here is a man that for all these years that was a Christian, and all of a sudden it was called upon him to do something remarkable. And all his remarkable was, was standing for Christ. What will be required of us in the future? I think that's the greatest contemplation we could have at this point in remembrance of 9-11. If you will stand with us now, we'll begin with opening prayer. Dana and for Mercy. Mercy, how you feeling? Are you up for this? <laughs> you look like you're up for it. Okay. Elder Doug Clayton, would you kindly lead us and mention these requests?
take your brown hymnal this morning and turn to 109. 109. The, the bulletin says something else. It's the same hymn, just this is the tune we know. 109. Thank you. 
Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. That'll be page 1527 in your pew Bible. When you come to that, please stand with us. starting at verse 21. Then Jesus came, then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all your debt, all, all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Take your brown hymnal again and turn to number 68. Number 68 in the brown.
Our scripture text for today is Matthew 18, <clears throat> verses 21 and following. Last Lord's Day, we studied the parable of the lost sheep, which was illustrative of the direct teaching Jesus gave concerning children in the kingdom of God and how Christ values them. There was a prelude to the parable. Jesus warned his disciples not to despise the children who believe in him. And we talked about some of the ways that adults do despise children. In speech, we say to them sometimes, you stupid, insulting speech. Actions, we belittle them. Non-actions, we ignore children. And number four, no encouragement or expressions of love. Just let them grow up on their own. Jesus' warning goes beyond all of these horrible things that we do, carries us into the realm of the spiritual harm done to children when adults despise them. talks about the angels in heaven watching over them as God the Father. So Jesus is discussing children who believe in him. Verse 6. Christ identifies with believing children as much as he does with believing adults. And that is what we need to keep in mind. You talked about the corporate sin of the church is that sometimes we do not recognize the grace of God operative in the lives of our children and we do not encourage them in their faith or in their service. Oh, they're just kids. And we dismiss them. So that was the prelude to the parable. The parable itself was on the lost sheep and it deals directly with children who wander off from the fold of God, verse 14. And in the parable, the shepherd leaves the 99 who are safe and goes in search for the one who is lost. We too are to seek those children, young people, who have passed through the instructions of our church and have wandered off and are lost within the world system. You can think back. Where are some of these kids? Well, they're not kids anymore. They're adults. But where are they? Are they in the church? No. What happened to them? They're off in the world doing their thing. Forgot about God. Either they need to come to Christ or they need to come back to Christ. Whichever is appropriate. Well, today's study brings us to consider... The parable of the unmerciful servant. From the opening phrase in verse 21, we know that something has gone on to provoke Peter's question. We read, then Peter came to Jesus and asked. The statement, then Peter, leads me to ask for the logical connection between his question and why he would ask it. Well, we don't have to stretch our imagination too far. Jesus himself provoked the question by his instruction 
on how to handle forgiveness between two brothers in the faith who have had a disagreement involving some sin. Look at verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens, you have won your brother over. And what follows is more detail as to what to do if the man will not listen. Next, you take a witness along with you. And that witness acts as a mediator. And finally, if that is to no avail, you bring the unresolved matter to the church for corporate discipline. Those are the procedures. I've taught on this procedure before, so has Pastor George in the adult class. So it's not my purpose to retrace this ground. Suffice it to say that verse 19, which talks about two believers agreeing on earth about anything they ask for in prayer, and which states that where two or three are gathered in Christ's name, Christ is in their midst, this verse of scripture is dealing with church discipline. And it refers directly to verse 18, which discusses the corporate decision of the church to impose sanctions on professing Christians who refuse to repent of sin and be reconciled to their brothers in Christ. It's not a blanket statement concerning two Christians getting their heads together to pray for something they want and receiving the promise that God will grant it because two of them are agreed on the request. It's not that. And it's not a blanket statement that if two believers gather in a home, that that means Christ is as much with them and approves of their home Bible study as he does the corporate gathering of the church in worship. People have used this verse time and again to justify their non-involvement in an organized local church. You say, well, we'll just, you know, we'll just get together in our home, two or three of us. We'll have our own prayer time. We'll have our own Bible study. And that'll be, that'll be our time of worship. That'll be church for us. Strong as I can put it, that is a wrenching of this text. It is being used to deny the necessity of church attendance and involvement in the corporate life of the church. From a text which is referring directly to corporate church involvement in matters of church discipline. Now you cannot do that and be honest to the scriptures. This is what pagans and heretics do to the scriptures to come up with all their weird notions. And by the way, you can make the Bible just say just about anything you want it to say. If you take it out of context, if you miss the grand theme of the book itself, maybe the chapter itself, or whatever is being talked about within context. Jesus here is dealing with sin in the church and what to do about it from the standpoint of the one who has been sinned against. He's talking about the offended party taking steps to work the matter out 
First privately, yes. And then if that fails, to bring a witness. And if that fails, bring it to the attention of the church. This is what provoked Peter's question. So, we're ready for the question. Here it is, verse 21. Peter said, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? (laughs) I like Peter. Sometimes he sticks his foot in his mouth. But mostly Peter asks the questions that everybody else was thinking, but were afraid to ask. The natural boldness of Peter caused him to speak out when the rest of the disciples were silent. His question also indicates that Peter has been listening as the Lord has been teaching. He is not out in la-la land somewhere. He is not distracted. He's focused on every word Jesus spoke. He know, we know this because his question is a logical outgrowth of Jesus' teaching. Jesus has been teaching on going to a brother who sins against you and seek reconciliation. So Peter has picked up on the logical conclusion, namely, that forgiveness must be evident in the offended party for reconciliation to take place. So you go to your brother, you confront him with his sin, and he admits his wrong, he seeks your forgiveness. What then? Well, I'll tell you what then. The obligation shifts now from the confessed sinner to the offended party. Do you really want reconciliation? That's the question. Will you forgive him or her, as the case may be, when they request it? This is Peter's question. But Peter's question goes even beyond this. He asks, here it is, how many times? How many times shall I forgive my brother? This is a question of quantity, isn't it? It is recognizing the problem of possible insincerity here on the part of the sinning party. I mean, if he were truly serious about regretting his sin against me, why does he keep doing it? And why do I have to keep confronting him and seeking reconciliation? How many times do I have to go through this process of reconciliation and forgiveness 
when this guy doesn't appear to be sincere in his repentance. Wow, these, these are all good questions. I'm sure we've asked them. And then Peter, in what I'm sure he, he thought was a magnanimous gesture, suggested the answer to his own question. Lord, how many times shall I forgive? How about seven times? Seven's a good number, right? In other words, after seven times, it ought to be evident to all that I have done my best and that this guy is just playing me for a fool. He isn't really sorry for his sin against me and he has no intention of ceasing from his evil. So why should I have to keep forgiving a hypocrite? Brethren, if you haven't said that, I'll bet you've thought it. At times. Now Jesus' answer is twofold. Number one, firstly, he gives a straightforward, direct answer. Here it is. I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. 70 times seven. Which is 490 times. The point being, regardless of what multiple the number seven is used, Jesus is saying, in the mind of God, there's never a time when forgiveness of a brother or sister in Christ is inappropriate. There is never a time when a fellow believer has outlived his right to forgiveness or has sinned away his opportunity for reconciliation. Every time a sinning believer seeks your forgiveness, you're to grant it, happily, wholeheartedly, unreservedly. You are not to allow repeat offenses to harden your heart against him, and you're not to cut him off from fellowship with you. Wow. I suggest to you, brethren, that Jesus' answer here is sufficiently convicting in its own right. We just stop here and listen to Jesus' answer to Peter. It should disturb us. Had Jesus never proceeded to the parable to illustrate his teaching we could still learn much from his reply to Peter. There's never a time when forgiveness should be withheld from a brother who has sinned against you. That brings out some important lessons. Number one, 
It's wrong for us to place limitations on kindness and mercy. Why would we do that? But we do it all the time. There's something within us that says, well, you know, I will meet people halfway, but if I believe that they are abusing my kindness and taking advantage of me, then I'm going to cut them off. And Jesus' teaching on this matter is, give to everyone who asks you, and if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those that who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But, Love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Wow. You be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Luke 6. Verse 32 and following. But they didn't say thank you. Ungrateful. They keep doing it. Wicked. Peter is asking, Lord, how many times? I mean, how many times? Really? Come on now. Even in this business of forgiveness, we want to make a deal with people. We expect that if we grant them forgiveness for the wrong they have done to us, the least they can do is not repeat the offense. Come on. They keep repeating it again and again. And so we lock our forgiveness and mercy into their payback. And if they don't come through with the appropriate response we want to hear, then we want to hold, withhold rather our mercy because of their ingratitude. Yeah, see, they're not thankful. But God doesn't operate this way with sinners, and we're not to operate that way either. We are to mimic God, not the world. God does not place limitations on his kindness and mercy and forgiveness, nor should we. That's the first lesson. There's a second lesson. Forgiveness within the body of Christ is a picture of the forgiveness of God to us through Christ. Peter was asking the Lord how often he should forgive. That's the root problem there. How often should he forgive his brother 
But if he had just thought a moment, he might have come up with the question, how often has God forgiven me? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. The two questions are interrelated, as we shall soon see in the parable that Jesus told. But Peter's question was not dealing with forgiveness outside the confines of the family of God. That's wholly another subject. Peter uses the word brother. His inquiry is in the realm of the church. The host of called out ones who have been forgiven of their sin by God and have been incorporated into the body of Christ, his son. So if we're to understand such forgiveness as a one-time shot, then we are in deep, deep trouble with God. The Bible asserts, we all stumble in many ways. I'm reading scripture. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man. That's true. James at 3 verse 2. And we know that no one except the man Christ Jesus is a perfect man. So along with our ongoing sin, we expect ongoing forgiveness by God, don't we? That's us. Yeah. And even in repeat sins against God, wherein we multiply the same identical sins against God, we long for, pray for, and expect His forgiveness in the merit of Jesus' blood. So, why wouldn't the pattern set by Christ become our model to follow when others sin against us? Well, guess what? In fact, it is the model. And that is why Jesus answered Peter, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. In other words, times without number, times beyond counting. Paul put it this way, be kind, be compassionate to one another forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us. Ephesians 4, verse 32, and chapter 5, verse 1. So you see, there are important lessons to learn from Jesus' direct, pointed answer to Peter. Peter's thinking, I'll be very magnanimous here. I'm willing to forgive my brother seven times. How about that, Lord? Just, I'll generously forgive him seven times. But boy number eight, I don't know. So Jesus answers Peter by suggesting an outrageous number. 70 times 7. Now he doesn't expect Peter to get out his calculator 
<laughs> and say, let me see, this is number 25 times I've forgiven this guy. No, he's not expecting any of that. He is expecting that Peter gets the message that in fact, there, there is an innumerable number times you're not to keep count, you are to just do it. Now the second part of Jesus' answer is the parable of the unmerciful servant. This is all related. It's all together. Verse 23 and following. This parable centers around a servant's response to the forgiveness he had received from his king to whom he owed Hendrickson and says millions of dollars. Just think of it that way. Put it in your own coin in your own day. He owes millions of dollars to the king. By the way, the concept of forgiveness is often associated in the financial world with debt. If a lender says to a borrower, I'm going to forgive your debt to me, it's understood by lender and borrower alike that the debt is canceled and that the borrower is no longer obligated to pay even one single payment back. He begins with a clean slate. But even in this financial setting, it is understood as well that not only is the lender forgiving the debt, he's also forgiving the person who incurred the debt. Verse 27. The servant's master took him, took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. You see, the debt is associated with a person here. You say, well, what's to forgive? Lots. The fact that this servant overextended himself by borrowing more than he could reasonably expect to pay back with interest, verse 25. The fact that he had jeopardized his own family's security and freedom by his spendthrift attitude, also verse 25. The fact that in the debt the borrower had obviously not made any attempt to liquidate even part of the debt, as prudence would have suggested, Verse 26, be patient with me, he says, and I will pay back everything. Yeah, but he paid nothing up to that point. This borrower still owed everything that he originally borrowed. He had just taken the money. He had run with it, spending it until it was all gone. And now bankrupt, he had nothing to contribute except a weak promise that if he were granted his freedom, he would work and pay back all that he owed. So, bottom line, this man had sinned greatly against the kindness of his master, and when his master forgave his debt, he also forgave him for his multiple sins of poor stewardship. Now, 
after receiving all of this mercy from his master, after being forgiven this huge, crippling debt, which was well beyond his promise to repay, this servant refused to forgive a man who owed him a few dollars, but instead threw him into debtor's prison. Verse 30. Oh, my. We can hardly believe this. I mean, it sounds so, so preposterous, so beyond the dictates of fairness and kindness that it's incomprehensible. Obviously, it affected the fellow servants who witnessed all of this because verse 31 says, they were greatly distressed over what had happened and they reported their observations to their master. And I would say it takes a lot of people, a lot for people rather, to tell the boss on fellow employees. It just doesn't happen. But this cruelty, the cruelty of the unmerciful servant was more than they could bear in silence. They had to say something. And when the master was informed of what had transpired, he summoned the original servant and then he said to him, and the Greek text says this, you wicked servant. You wicked servant. All that debt of yours I canceled because you begged me to. By the way, by placing the statement of the debt in the forefront of the discussion, this king was reminding this servant that he had been forgiven far more than what the subordinate servant had asked him to. He's saying something to this effect. You know, you were forgiven millions of dollars of debt which would have cost enslavement for yourself and your wife and your kids for the rest of your lives. And you mean to tell me <laughs> that you imprisoned a fellow servant who owed you a mere hundred dollars? Boy, I got to scratch my head on that one. Can't you just see the fire in this king's eyes? Can't you feel the heat of his justifiable rage? As he confronts this ingrate of a servant who had no sense of the pity and mercy he had received and was obviously devoid of showing mercy himself, to those who owed him. Well, let me tell you, this changed everything for this unmerciful servant. His master revoked his earlier ruling of clemency. He intensified his original punishment for this man's sin. Originally, verse 25, master ordered that this servant be sold along with his wife and children 
and all of his earthly possessions, and through a life of indentured servitude, he could work off the debt, which would be impossible to do, but he could die trying. That was the original deal. And as horrendous as such a prospect was, what happened now was worse, verse 34. In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed, which is going to be never. He's not ever going to be able to pay it back. What's the point? Lord, tell us, please. What's the point of this parable? Verse 35. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you, Peter, the rest of you disciples, unless you forgive your brother from the heart. I'm glad Jesus went on to give the second part of his answer to Peter's question. The parable of the unmerciful servant is the second part. His direct answer to Peter said that we are not to place limits on our mercy. The point of the parable tells us that if we do, there's a great consequence to pay. Now we do not like Jesus' connection of his word torture to what he says his heavenly Father will do to us if we are unforgiving to a brother who sins against us. But like it or not, this is the gospel Jesus preached. Boy, that's a, a strong word. Yeah. What do you think hell's going to be like? Do you think of it as the world has depicted it as a brothel for all kinds of immorality? Oh, maybe as a casino. For the gamblers, maybe a lush bar for all the drunkards. Maybe a gold mine for the greedy. They can sit there and count their gold and stack it up. All this as if, in all of this, hell were simply a place in which all righteousness no longer exists. And so the occupants just spend their time indulging themselves in the lust of their hearts while the righteous types walk around heaven with halos overhead and harps in their hand. And No, no, no. No. Hell is a place of torture. It is a place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth in pain. 
In Jesus' account of the rich man who died, we read, In hell where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip <coughs> the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Luke 16, verse 23. In verse 28, this man calls hell a place of torment. I cannot fail to impress upon you here today who are playing footloose and fancy free with your souls, who will not give serious consideration to the wages your sin is strung, storing up, that there is coming a day of God's wrath which has a start date but no ending date. The scripture speaks of, let me read it for you, everlasting punishment. I didn't say it. God said it. Matthew 25, verse 46. Speaks of eternal judgment. Hebrews 6, verse 2. Really? Everlasting? Eternal? How's come? Well, because the debt incurred by your sin is insurmountable. It's not payable. You'll never be free of the debt You'll never be squared away with God over your iniquity. The rich man in hell would have given anything for but one drop of water on his tongue, even if the comfort of such would have been but for a moment, a split second. Hell is a place of torture. Your soul does not die in hell. It's alive to every torment. And it's torment without end. You never get used to the pain. You never develop a toleration level for it. It is agony and torment forever and ever and ever. World without end. And I don't gloat in saying that. I say it in tears. Those here in Christ today might say, well, I don't have to worry about that because I am delivered from hell through the blood of Christ. Are you? To whom did Jesus tell this parable? To whom did he make the application? Was it not to Peter and the rest of the disciples? Was this parable not a response to Peter's inquiry as to how many times he had to forgive his brother who sinned against him? Isn't Jesus' interpretation of the parable directly connected with Christian men and Christian women 
and their interpersonal relationships. Verse 35. If you ever thought lightly of the need to be following and forgiving from the heart to a fellow Christian who has wronged you, you better think again. Jesus doesn't take it lightly. Why? Because you and I, indeed every believer in Christ, we are the servants who owed the master millions. That's who we were. And it is the magnitude of our sin, our iniquity, which buries us in a mountain of debt. We were that servant who was bankrupt. We were the ones who had no means to satisfy God for the debt we owed. But we were forgiven the debt. Indeed, the debt was canceled through the blood of God's own Son, Jesus. Through Jesus, God was merciful. And see, he set us free when we deserve slavery. And even worse, when we deserve torture. Now then, for those of us who have been forgiven much, we had better be forgiving in return towards those who owe us little by comparison. To be unmerciful, to be unforgiving, is to demonstrate that God's grace has never touched our lives. It is to say that we never did appreciate or respond aright to the mercy which was shown to us. Conformity to the character of Christ is not optional for Christians. We shall become like Christ or we shall not enjoy the favor of Christ. We shall be forgiving to those who wrong us or we will not be forgiven. We shall be merciful to those who don't deserve it that's that brother with the repeat offenses. Or we will not receive mercy from our Heavenly Father. The mark of a disciple of Christ is not our verbal testimony, but our actual and practical behavior in a manner as we confront the issues of life which mimics the behavior and the manner of Jesus our Lord. If in some measure however imperfect you don't think and act like Jesus thought and acted you do not have his spirit residing within you. So how can you say that? Well because Paul says it. Let me read it for you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ. Wow! There's a little verse, Romans 8, verse 9, that carries quite a punch. Let me read it again. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. That's pretty straightforward, don't you think? 
So neither Jesus in our text nor apostles in their later writings played games with those whose lives did not match up with their profession. Well, he asked the question, was Peter not truly a child of God on this occasion? Well, I wouldn't say that, but I would remember that Peter and the disciples were in the learning process of what it meant to be a believer in Christ. Every Christian, to quote Peter, must grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. 2 Peter 3, verse 18. And that includes Mr. Peter, too, himself. He has to grow. When a person is born again and indwelled by the Spirit of Christ, there is not an immediate, total transformation of all of one's sinful character traits and thought processes. This is why Peter talks about growing in two areas. The area of grace, whereby we learn what mercy was bestowed upon us, and therefore how such mercy and grace must become a part of our own dealings with one another. And secondly, the area of knowledge, whereby things we didn't know become a part of our understanding. And that is where I think Peter's shortcoming lied. Yeah, he certainly got the message with regard to the necessity of forgiving a brother who had sinned against him. But he placed limits on mercy as though such could be reasonably done in light of God's limitless mercy towards him as a sinner. And once being reminded of this truth, and once being warned of the consequence of being unforgiving towards a sinning brother, there's no evidence in Scripture that Peter did not heed the warning. Praise the Lord. This is the growth process of sanctification all of us in Christ must undergo. God will tolerate our ignorance. He will bring us into the truth. But he will, what he will never tolerate is those who, after being instructed more perfectly in the gospel, turn their backs on the truth and remain in their sin. For them, the torturers await because you're false. Their continuation in known sin reveals a rebel heart. I will not change. I like myself the way I am. I'm just as good as the next person. Yeah, and just as evil as the next person. May the Lord teach us it's great truths that Jesus did not pull punches in the gospel that he proclaimed. I wish I heard preaching like this on the TV preachers. 
you need to pray for me, George, Jared, others who teach, Doug. We want to be men who declare the truth of God's word, even if it hurts us sometimes, even if it scares us sometimes. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth. Please burn the truth of God's word into our lives. We want to live it, not just talk about it. I pray that you'll help us to do that. To the praise and glory of your grace, we pray these things. For our good, we praise these things. Because if we don't practice the truth of God's word, then that means that truth is not important to us. It means that we're happy with just being a hypocrite. And from what we know of the teachings of Jesus, the hypocrites don't make it to glory. Lord, forgive us. Help us to be strong in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. From the Brown Hymnal, number 45.
says in one of the Psalms, God's mercies are new every morning, every morning. The fact that we make it through the night, we're into a new day, that's one mercy. He restores us when we're sick, He forgives us when we sin, His mercies are new every day. Father, we thank you for your word. Praise you for it and the fact that your mercies are new every day. And wonder of wonder, your mercies meet our needs. Sometimes we don't even have to pray about them. They just come because you are our Heavenly Father and you see our need. We're too stupid not to pray about them, but you grant us your mercies anyway. And I thank you for that. At other times we pray for your mercies because we sense our sin and we sense our uh, shortcomings and we thank you for that as well and we pray for others because we see that they need your mercy and they need your forgiveness and they need to come to know Christ and we pray for them in that avenue and we thank you Lord for that may you be continued in mercy on our little church Help us that uh, serve. Help us, Lord, to be a witness and uh, an example. We pray for our children and our youth, in particular, in this cruel and wicked world. Lord, help us to live for Jesus, and we'll praise you for what you're going to do, using us for your glory. Amen. We are dismissed. Thank you.
No evening service if you didn't see that.